Welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of Chill with a Chapter Book. My name is Allison from the Wells Public Library, and this season we are reading The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. Chapter 8, The Robin Who Showed the Way. She looked at the key quite a long time. She turned it over and over and thought about it. As I have said before, she was not a child who had been trained to ask permission or consult her elders about things. All she thought about the key was that if it was the key to the closed garden and she could find out where the door was, she could perhaps open it and see what was inside the walls and what had happened to the old rose trees. It was because she had been shut up so long that she wanted to see it. It seemed as if it must be different from other places and that something strange must have happened to it during 10 years. Besides that, if she liked it, she could go into it every day and shut the door behind her. And she could make up some play of her own and play it quite alone because nobody would ever know where she was but would think the door was still locked and the key buried in the earth. The thought of that pleased her very much. Living as it were, all by herself in a house with a hundred mysteriously closed rooms and having nothing whatever to do to amuse herself, had set her inactive brain to working and was actually awakening her imagination. There is no doubt that the fresh, strong, pure air from the moor had a great deal to do with it. Just as it had given her an appetite, and fighting with the wind had stirred her blood, so the same things had stirred her mind. In India, she had always been too hot and languid and weak to care much about anything. But in this place, she was beginning to care and to want to do new things. Already she felt less contrary, though she did not know why. She put the key in her pocket and walked up and down her walk. No one but herself ever seemed to come there, so she could walk slowly and look at the wall, or rather, at the ivy growing on it. The ivy was the baffling thing. Howsoever carefully she looked, she could see nothing but thickly growing, glossy, dark green leaves. She was very much disappointed. Something of her contrariness came back to her as she paced the walk and looked over it at the treetops inside. It seemed so silly, she said to herself, to be near it and not to be able to get in. She took the key in her pocket when she went back to the house, and she made up her mind that she would always carry it with her when she went out, so that if she ever should find the hidden door, she would be ready. Mrs. Medlock had allowed Martha to sleep all night at the cottage, but she was back at her work in the morning with cheeks redder than ever and in the best of spirits. I got up at four o'clock, she said. Eh, it was pretty on the moor with the birds getting up and the rabbits scampering about and the sun rising. I didn't walk all the way. A man gave me a ride in his cart and I did enjoy myself. She was full of stories of the delights of her day out. Her mother had been glad to see her, and they had got the baking and washing all out of the way. She had even made each of the children a dough cake with a bit of brown sugar in it. 
I had them all piping hot when they came in from playing on the moor. And the cottage all smelt a nice, clean, hot bacon, and there was a good fire, and they just shouted for joy. Our Dickon, he said our cottage was good enough for a king. In the evening, they had all sat round the fire, and Martha and her mother had sewed patches on torn clothes and mended stockings, and Martha had told them about the little girl who had come from India and who had been waited on all her life by what Martha called blacks until she didn't know how to put on her own stockings. Eh, they did like to hear about you, said Martha. They wanted to know all about the blacks and about the ship you came in. I couldn't tell them enough. Mary reflected a little. I'll tell you a great deal more before your next day out, she said, so that you will have more to talk about. I dare say they should like to hear about riding on elephants and camels and about the officers going to hunt tigers. My word, cried delighted Martha. It would set them clean off their heads. Would they really do that, miss? It would be same as a wild beast show like we heard they had in York once. India is quite different from Yorkshire, Mary said slowly as she thought the matter over. I never thought of that. Did Dickon and your mother like to hear you talk about me? Why, our Dickens' eyes nearly started out of his head they got that round, answered Martha. But Mother, she was put out about your seeming to be all by yourself like. She said, hasn't Mr. Craven got no governess for her, nor no nurse? And I said, no, he hasn't, though Mrs. Medlock says he will think when he... Ah. And I said, no, he hasn't, though Mrs. Medlock says he will when he thinks of it but she says he mayn't think of it for two or three years. I don't want a governess, said Mary sharply. But mother says you ought to be learning your book by this time, and you ought to have a woman to look after you. And she says, now Martha, you just think how you'd feel yourself in a big place like that, wandering about all alone and no mother. You do your best to cheer her up, she says, and I said I would. Mary gave her a long, steady look. You do cheer me up, she said. I like to hear you talk. Presently, Martha went out of the room and came back with something held in her hands under her apron. What does thou think, she said with a cheerful grin. I've brought thee a present. A present? exclaimed Mistress Mary. How could a cottage full of fourteen hungry people give anyone a present? A man was driving across the moor peddling, Martha explained and he stopped his cart at our door. He had pots and pans and odds and ends, but Mother had no money to buy anything. Just as he was going away, our Elizabeth Ellen called out, Mother, he's got skipping ropes with red and blue handles. And Mother, she calls out quite suddenly, Here, stop, mister, how much are they? And he says tuppence. And Mother, she began fumbling in her pocket, and she says to me, Martha, thou's brought me thy wages like a good lass, and I've got four places to put every penny, but I'm just going to take tuppence out of it to buy that child a skipping rope. And she bought one, and here it is. She brought it out from under her apron and exhibited it quite proudly. It was a strong, slender rope with a striped red and blue handle at each end. But Mary Lennox had never seen a skipping rope before. She gazed at it with a mystified expression. 
What is it for? she asked curiously. For? cried out Martha. Does that mean that they've not got skipping ropes in India? For all they've got elephants and tigers and camels? This is what it's for. Just watch me. And she ran into the middle of the room and, taking a handle in each hand, began to skip and skip and skip, while Mary turned in her chair to stare at her, and the queer faces in the old portraits seemed to stare at her too, and wonder what on earth this common little cottager had the impudence to be doing under their very noses. But Martha did not even see them. The interest and curiosity in Mistress Mary's face delighted her, and she went on skipping and counted as she skipped until she had reached a hundred. I could skip longer than that, she said when she stopped. I've skipped as much as five hundred when I was twelve, but I wasn't as fat then as I am now, and I was in practice. Mary got up from her chair, beginning to feel excited herself. It looks nice, she said. Your mother is a kind woman. Do you think I could ever skip like that? You must try it, urged Martha, handing her the skipping rope. You can't skip a hundred at first, but if you practice, you'll mount up. That's what Mother said. She says, nothing will do her more good than skipping rope. It's the sensiblest toy a child can have. Let her play out in the fresh air skipping, and it'll stretch her legs and arms and give her some strength in them. It was plain that there was not a great deal of strength in Mistress Mary's arms and legs when she first began to skip. She was not very clever at it, but she liked it so much that she did not want to stop. Put on thy things and run and skip out of doors, said Martha. Mother said I must tell you to keep out of doors as much as you could, even when it rains a bit, so as thou wrap up warm. Mary put on her coat and hat and took her skipping rope over her arm. She opened the door to go out and then suddenly thought of something and turned back rather slowly. Martha, she said, they were your wages. It was your twopence, really. Thank you. She said it stiffly because she was not used to thanking people or noticing that they did things for her. Thank you she said, and held out her hand because she did not know what else to do. Martha gave her hand a clumsy little shake, as if she was not accustomed to this sort of thing either. Then she laughed. Eh, thou art a queer, old womanish thing, she said. If thou'd been our Elizabeth Ellen, that'd have given me a kiss. Mary looked stiffer than ever. Do you want me to kiss you? Martha laughed again. Nay, not me, she answered. If that was different, perhaps thou'd want to thyself. But that isn't. Run off outside and play with thy rope. Mistress Mary felt a little awkward as she went out of the room. Yorkshire people seemed strange, and Martha was always rather a puzzle to her. At first, she had disliked her very much, but now she did not. The skipping rope was a wonderful thing. She counted and skipped and skipped and counted until her cheeks were quite red and she was more interested than she had ever been since she was born. The sun was shining and a little wind was blowing, not a rough wind, but one which came in delightful little gusts and brought a fresh scent of newly turned earth with it. She skipped round the fountain garden and up one walk and down another. 
She skipped at last into the kitchen garden and saw Ben Weatherstaff digging and talking to his robin, which was hopping about him. She skipped down the walk toward him, and he lifted his head and looked at her with a curious expression. She had wondered if he would notice her. She wanted him to see her skip. Well, he exclaimed, upon my word, perhaps thou art a youngin after all. And perhaps thou hast got child's blood in thy veins instead of sour buttermilk. Thou hast skipped red into thy cheeks as sure as my name's Ben Weatherstaff. I wouldn't have believed thou could do it. I never skipped before, Mary said. I'm just beginning. I can only go up to twenty. Ah, thou keep on, said Ben. Thou shapes well enough at it for a youngin that's lived with heathen. Just see how he's watching thee, jerking his head toward the robin. He followed after thee yesterday. He'll be at it again today. He'll be bound to find out what the skipping rope is. He's never seen one. Ah, shaking his head at the bird. That curiosity will be the death of thee sometime, if that doesn't look sharp. Mary skipped round all the gardens and round the orchard, resting every few minutes. At length, she went to her own special walk and made up her mind to try if she could skip the whole length of it. It was a good long skip and she began slowly, but before she had gone halfway down the path, she was so hot and breathless that she was obliged to stop. She did not mind much because she had already counted up to 30. She stopped with a laugh of pleasure, and there, lo and behold, was the robin swaying on a long branch of ivy. He had followed her, and he greeted her with a chirp. As Mary had skipped toward him, she felt something heavy in her pocket strike against her at each jump, and when she saw the robin, she laughed again. "'You showed me where the key was yesterday,' she said. "'You ought to show me the door today.' But I don't believe you know. The robin flew from his swinging spray of ivy onto the top of the wall, and he opened his beak and sang a loud, lovely trill, merely to show off. Nothing in the world is quite as adorably lovely as a robin when he shows off, and they are nearly always doing it. Mary Lennox had heard a great deal about magic in her Aya's stories, and she always said that what happened almost at that moment was magic. One of the nice little gusts of wind rushed down the walk, and it was a stronger one than the rest. It was strong enough to wave the branches of the trees, and it was more than strong enough to sway the trailing sprays of untrimmed ivy hanging from the wall. Mary had stepped close to the robin, and suddenly the gust of wind swung aside some loose ivy trails, and more suddenly still, she jumped toward it and caught it in her hand. This she did because she had seen something under it. A round knob which had been covered by the leaves hanging over it. It was the knob of a door. She put her hands under the leaves and began to pull and push them aside. Thick as the ivy hung, it nearly all was a loose and swinging curtain, though some had crept over wood and iron. Mary's heart began to thump 
and her hands to shake a little in her delight and excitement. The robin kept singing and twittering away and tilting his head on one side as if he were as excited as she was. What was this under her hands, which was square and made of iron and which her fingers found a hole in? It was the lock of the door, which had been closed ten years, and she put her hand in her pocket, drew out the key, and found it fitted the keyhole. She put the key in and turned it. It took two hands to do it, but it did turn. And then she took a long breath and looked behind her up the long walk to see if anyone was coming. No one was coming. No one ever did come, it seemed, and she took another long breath because she could not help it, and she held back the swinging curtain of ivy and pushed back to the door, which opened slowly, slowly. Then she slipped through it and shut it behind her and stood with her back against it, looking about her and breathing quite fast with excitement and wonder and delight. She was standing inside the secret garden. Chapter 9 The Strangest House It was the sweetest, most mysterious-looking place anyone could imagine. The high walls which shut it in were covered with the leafless stems of climbing roses which were so thick that they were matted together. Mary Lennox knew they were roses because she had seen a great many roses in India. All the ground was covered with grass of a wintry brown, and out of it grew clumps of bushes, which were surely rose bushes if they were alive. There were numbers of standard roses, which had so spread their branches that they were like little trees. There were other trees in the garden, and one of the things which made the place look strangest and loveliest was that climbing roses had run all over them and swung down long tendrils, which made light swaying curtains, and here and there they had caught at each other or at a far-reaching branch and had crept from one tree to another and made lovely bridges of themselves. There were neither leaves nor roses on them now, and Mary did not know whether they were dead or alive, but their thin gray or brown branches and sprays looked like a sort of hazy mantle spreading over everything, walls and trees and even brown grass, where they had fallen from their fastenings and run along the ground. It was this hazy tangle from tree to tree which made it all look so mysterious. Mary had thought it must be different from other gardens which had not been left all by themselves so long, and indeed it was different from any other place she had ever seen in her life. How still it is, she whispered. How still! Then she waited a moment and listened at the stillness. The robin, who had flown to his treetop, was still as all the rest. He did not even flutter his wings. He sat without stirring and looked at Mary. No wonder it is still, she whispered again. I am the first person who has spoken in here for ten years. She moved away from the door 
stepping as softly as if she were afraid of awakening someone. She was glad that there was grass under her feet and that her steps made no sounds. She walked under one of the fairy-like gray arches between the trees and looked up at the sprays and tendrils which formed them. I wonder if they are all quite dead, she said. Is it all a quite dead garden? I wish it wasn't. If she had been Ben Weatherstaff, she could have told whether the wood was alive by looking at it, but she could only see that they were only gray or brown sprays and branches, and none showed any signs of even a tiny leaf bud anywhere. But she was inside the wonderful garden, and she could come through the door under the ivy any time, and she felt as if she had found a world all her own. The sun was shining inside the four walls, and the high arch of blue sky over this particular piece of mistlethwaite seemed even more brilliant and soft than it was over the moor. The robin flew down from his treetop and hopped about or flew after her from one bush to another. He chirped a good deal and had a very busy air, as if he were showing her things. Everything was strange and silent, and she seemed to be hundreds of miles away from anyone, but somehow she did not feel lonely at all. All that troubled her was her wish that she knew whether all the roses were dead, or if perhaps some of them hadn't lived and might put out leaves and buds as the weather got warmer. She did not want to be she did not want it to be a quite dead garden. If it were a quite alive garden, how wonderful it would be, and what thousands of roses would grow on every side. Her skipping rope had hung over her arm when she came in, and after she had walked about for a while, she thought she would skip round the whole garden, stopping when she wanted to look at things. There seemed to have been grass paths here and there, and in one or two corners there were alcoves of evergreen with stone seats or tall moss-covered flower urns in them. As she came near the second of these alcoves, she stopped skipping. There had once been a flower bed in it, and she thought she saw something sticking out of the black earth, some sharp little pale green points. She remembered what Ben Weatherstaff had said, and she knelt down to look at them. Yes, they are tiny growing things, and they might be crocuses or snowdrops or daffodils, she whispered. She bent very close to them and sniffed the fresh scent of the damp earth. She liked it very much. Perhaps there are some other ones coming up in other places, she said. I will go all over the garden and look. She did not skip, but walked. She went slowly and kept her eyes on the ground. She looked in the old border beds and among the grass, and after she had gone round, trying to miss nothing, she had found ever so many more sharp, pale green points, and she had become quite excited again. It isn't a quite dead garden, she cried out softly to herself. Even if the roses are dead, there are other things alive. She did not know anything about gardening, but the grass seemed so thick in some places where the green points were pushing their way through that she thought they did not seem to have room enough to grow. 
She searched about until she found a rather sharp piece of wood, and knelt down and dug and weeded out the weeds and grass until she had made nice little clear places around them. Now they look as if they could breathe, she said, after she had finished with the first ones. I'm going to do ever so many more. I'll do all I can see. If I haven't time today, I can come tomorrow. She went from place to place and dug and weeded and enjoyed herself so immensely that she was led on from bed to bed and into the grass under the trees. The exercise made her so warm that she first threw her coat off and then her hat, and without knowing it, she was smiling down onto the grass and the pale green points all the time. The robin was tremendously busy. He was very much pleased to see gardening begun on his own estate. He had often wondered at Ben Weatherstaff, where gardening is done, all sorts of delightful things to eat are turned up with the soil. Now here was this new kind of creature who was not half Ben's size, and yet had had the sense to come into his garden and begin at once. Mistress Mary worked in her garden until it was time to go to her midday dinner. In fact, she was rather late in remembering, and when she put on her coat and hat and picked up her skipping rope, she could not believe that she had been working two or three hours. She had been actually happy all the time, and dozens and dozens of the tiny pale green points were to be seen in cleared places, looking twice as cheerful as they had looked before when the grass and weeds had been smothering them. I shall come back this afternoon, she said, looking all round at her new kingdom and speaking to the trees and the rose bushes as if they heard her. Then she ran lightly across the grass, pushed open the slow old door and slipped through it under the ivy. She had such red cheeks and such bright eyes and ate such a dinner that Martha was delighted. Two pieces of meat? And two helpings of rice pudding, she said. Ah, mother will be pleased when I tell her what the skipping rope's done for thee. In the course of her digging with her pointed stick, Mistress Mary had found herself digging up a sort of white root, rather like an onion. She had put it back in its place and patted the earth carefully down on it, and just now she wondered if Martha could tell her what it was. Martha, she said, what are those white roots that look like onions? They're bulbs, answered Martha. Lots of spring flowers grow from them. Their very little ones are snowdrops and crocuses, and the big ones are narcissuses and jonquils and daffy-downy-dillies. The biggest of all is lilies and purple flags. Eh, they are nice. Dickens got a whole lot of them planted in our bit of garden. Does Dickens know all about them? asked Mary, a new idea taking possession of her. Our Dickens can make a flower grow out of a brick walk. Mother says he just whispers things out of the ground. Do bulbs live a long time? Would they live years and years if no one helped them? inquired Mary anxiously. They're things as helps themselves, said Martha. That's why poor folk can afford to have them. If you don't trouble them, most of them will work away underground for a lifetime and spread out and have little ones. 
There's a place in the park woods here where there are snowdrops by thousands. They're the prettiest sight in Yorkshire when the spring comes. No one knows when they was first planted. I wish the spring was here now, said Mary. I want to see all the things that grow in England. She had finished her dinner and gone to her favorite seat on the hearth rug. I wish... I wish I had a little spade, she said. Whatever dost thou want a spade for? asked Martha, laughing. Art thou going to take to digging? I must tell mother that, too. Mary looked at the fire and pondered a little. She must be careful if she meant to keep her secret kingdom. She wasn't doing any harm, but if Mr. Craven found out about the open door, he would be fearfully angry and get a new key and lock it up forevermore. She really could not bear that. This is such a big, lonely place, she said slowly, as if she were turning matters over in her mind. The house is lonely, and the park is lonely, and the gardens are lonely. So many places seem shut up. I never did many things in India, but there were more people to look at, natives and soldiers marching by, and sometimes bands playing, and my ayah told me stories. There is no one to talk to here except you and Ben Weatherstaff, and you have to do your work, and Ben Weatherstaff won't speak to me often. I thought if I had a little spade, I could dig somewhere as he does, and I might make a little garden if he would give me some seeds. Martha's face quite lightened up. There now, she exclaimed. If that wasn't one of the things Mother said, she says, there's such a lot of room in that big place, why don't they give her a bit for herself, even if she doesn't plant nothing but parsley and radishes? She'd dig and rake away and be right down happy over it. Them was the very words she said. Were they, said Mary. How many things she knows, doesn't she? Eh, said Martha. It's like she says, a woman as brings up twelve children learns something besides her ABC. Children's as good as arithmetic to set you finding out things. How much would a spade cost, a little one? Mary asked. Well, was Martha's reflective answer, at Thwaite Village there's a shop or so, and I saw little garden sets with a spade and a rake and a fork all tied together for two shillings, and they were stout enough to work with, too. I've got more than that in my purse, said Mary. Mrs. Morrison gave me five shillings, and Mrs. Medlock gave me some money from Mr. Craven. Did he remember thee that much? exclaimed Martha. Mrs. Medlock said I was to have a shilling a week to spend. She gives me one every Saturday. I didn't know what to spend it on. My word, that's riches, said Martha. That can buy anything in the world thou wants. The rent of our cottage is only one and three pence, and it's like pulling eye teeth to get it. Now I've just thought of something putting her hands on her hips. What? said Mary eagerly. In the shop at Thwaite, they sell packages of flower seeds for a penny each, and our Dickon, he knows which is the prettiest ones and how to make them grow. He walks over to Thwaite many a day just for the fun of it. Does that know how to print letters? I know how to write, 
Mary answered. Martha shook her head. Our Dickon can only read printin'. If that could print, we could write a letter to him and ask him to go and buy the garden tools and the seeds at the same time. Oh, you're a good girl, Mary cried. You are, really. I didn't know you were so nice. I know I can print letters if I try. Let's ask Mrs. Medlock for a pen and ink and some paper. I've got some of my own, said Martha. I bought them so I could print a bit of a letter to Mother of a Sunday. I'll go and get it. She ran out of the room, and Mary stood by the fire and twisted her thin little hands together with sheer pleasure. If I have a spade, she whispered, I can make the earth nice and soft and dig up weeds. If I have seeds and can make flowers grow, the garden won't be dead at all. It will come alive. She did not go out again that afternoon, because when Martha returned with her pen and ink and paper, she was obliged to clear the table and carry the plates and dishes downstairs, and when she got into the kitchen, Mrs. Medlock was there and told her to do something, so Mary waited for what seemed to her a long time before she came back. Then it was a serious piece of work to write to Dickon. Mary had been taught very little, because her governesses had disliked her too much to stay with her. She could not spell particularly well, but she found that she could print letters when she tried. This was the letter Martha dictated to her. My dear Dickon, this comes hoping to find you well, as it leaves me at present. Miss Mary has plenty of money, and will you go to Thwaite and buy her some flower seeds and a set of garden tools to make a flower bed? Pick the prettiest ones, and easy to grow because she has never done it before, and lived in India which is different. Give my love to Mother and every one of you. Miss Mary is going to tell me a lot more, so that on my next day out, you can hear about elephants and camels, and gentlemen going hunting lions and tigers. Your loving sister, Martha Phoebe Sowerby. We'll put the money in the envelope, and I'll get the butcher boy to take it in his cart. He's a great friend of Dickens, said Martha. How shall I get the things when Dickon buys them? He'll bring them to you himself. He'll like to walk over this way. Oh, exclaimed Mary, then I shall see him. I never thought I should see Dickon. Does thou want to see him? asked Martha suddenly, for Mary had looked so pleased. Yes, I do. I never saw a boy foxes and crows loved. I want to see him very much. Martha gave a little start, as if she remembered something. Now to think, she broke out, to think of me forgetting that there, and I thought I was going to tell you first thing this morning. I asked Mother, and she said she'd asked Mrs. Medlock her own self. Do you mean, Mary began, what I said Tuesday, ask her if you might be driven over to our cottage some day and have a bit of Mother's hot oak cake and butter and a glass of milk. It seemed as if all the interesting things were happening in one day. To think of going over the moor in the daylight and when the sky was blue. To think of going into the cottage which held twelve children. Does she think Mrs. Medlock would let me go? She asked, 
quite anxiously. Aye, she thinks she would. She knows what a tidy woman mother is and how clean she keeps the cottage. If I went, I should see your mother as well as Dickon, said Mary, thinking it over and liking the idea very much. She doesn't seem to be like the mothers in India. Her work in the garden and the excitement of the afternoon ended by making her feel quiet and thoughtful. Martha stayed with her until tea time, but they sat in comfortable quiet and talked very little. But just before Martha went downstairs for the tea tray, Mary asked a question. Martha, she said, has the scullery maid had the toothache again today? Martha certainly started slightly. What makes they ask that, she said. Because when I waited so long for you to come back, I opened the door and walked down the corridor to see if you were coming. And I heard that far off crying again, just as we heard it the other night. There isn't a wind today, so you see, it couldn't have been the wind. Ah, said Martha restlessly. That mustn't go walking about in corridors and listening. Mr. Craven would be that there angry. There's no knowing what did he do. I wasn't listening, said Mary. I was just waiting for you, and I heard it. That's three times. My word. Uh, there's Mrs. Medlock's bell, said Martha, and she almost ran out of the room. It's the strangest house anyone ever lived in, said Martha drowsily, as she dropped her head on the cushioned seat of the armchair near her. Fresh air and digging and skipping rope had made her feel so comfortably tired that she fell asleep. <laughs>